6 a.m. in Los Angeles, 9 a.m. in New York City and up and down the East Coast of America. It's 2 p.m. in London, England, 7.30 in Mumbai, India. It is 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. And in Malaysia, it's 1964. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants, as usual. <laughs> Welcome in. Hello, Facebook, YouTube, YouTube, and Twitch.tv. And also, of course, our good friends over on Rumble.com where you will find all of our shows from number one to number 180. 180 of these bad boys we have uh, we've done. Thank you. You can go back. Believe me, it's 180 hours of absolute, complete crap. And I hope you'll love all of it. <laughs> We're a podcast, too, of course. We have been for quite a while. Thank you. Uh, it's amazing how many people actually download and listen to this show. I really, really do love you, and I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Uh, you'll find us on all the platforms, uh, Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher, uh, Geo7 in uh, India. We have a big Indian audience. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Uh, all across, wherever you listen to your podcast, we're there. Just search for that logo, and I'm Not Wearing Pants or Jay Sheldon and as long as it's got that bad boy there, <clears throat> you're on the right place. Just hit the subscribe button and the rest will come right to your doorstep. I appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, we got lots going on uh, tonight. We have a weird collection of stuff. And um, a couple of things before we get to our Miko update. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to uh, to just hit on very quickly. There are links in our show notes. The show notes is our description down below. You'll see. Uh, the description and all the links are in there. But we covered this a uh, few stream, streams ago uh, from World of Buzz, and uh, I just wanted to share an update. Uh, you remember the JB duo? They actually got arrested for allegedly indecent behavior. They basically posted some fun photos, and you know somebody with a bug up their butt got annoyed. Welcome to Malaysia. And anyway, they apologized. I just wanted to say, you didn't have to. Please don't. You're just giving in to the idiots, and you're giving them what they want. Don't apologize for what you did, which is absolutely fine, and no one with half a brain would have any sort of problem. But anyway, one of them said he's going to stick to his style. Good for you. But in the future, if these morons keep picking on you, just tell them to go screw off. Seriously, the more you give these idiots any time, the more they think they deserve it, and they don't. All right. Uh, what else did we want to? Oh, yes. This actually fits in really well with, uh, with our Miko update. So uh, we might as well go ahead and roll the intro. Miko update. <laughs> yeah, Miko, Miko, Miko! She was hanging around here before, and I don't know where she went now. Miko, are you there? I was hoping to get her on camera tonight, but I think she's out chasing scrats. So anyway, um, she's doing really well. She's still eating like a banshee. She is uh, recovered times 10. Uh, we didn't weigh her. We need to do that soon. I think I'll need to weigh her after the show tonight, and I'll let you know Saturday uh, what that is. But she's doing really well. 
somewhat related to the Miko update is this, which I posted on my Facebook. It's this is my post, actually, and I wrote the words beautiful because it is it's it's a short film. It's called Our Long Walk. And um, this guy and his puppy, Kyoto, who is a Shiba Inu, you'll you'll see her there, uh, took off on this walk thousands of miles across all kinds of terrain. And he shot this and put together this short film. It is amazing. If I were 30 years younger and in better health, <laughs> I can tell you I would do this. I would absolutely love to do this. I put the link in our show notes. Please check it out. Check out the film. Uh, it's a short film. It's about four minutes long, but it's worth your time. It is amazing. Absolutely an amazing journey with this guy and his, uh, his Shiba Inu. So anyway, apparently I'm being ignored. Uh, if the little lady decides she wants to honor us with her presence, we'll pop her in on the show tonight. So we've got that uh, coming up. We've got your food sucks. Okay. The thumbnail tonight was clickbait. I fully admit that. I absolutely made that for clickbait. It's got a picture of a bunch of Malaysian food, all of which, by the way, I find absolutely delicious. But I put the headline, your food sucks. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Twitter users, this is from NDTV. It's actually food.ndtv.com. The link's in the show notes. You don't need to listen to me rattle off what the .com is. Anyway, you will find this article, <clears throat> which is <laughs> amazing. Twitter users share their most controversial food opinions ever. In a recently surfaced Twitter thread, users discussed and shared what they thought about food and how it had been incredibly controversial. Um, there are certain food statements which are almost universal truths. A certain section of people on Twitter disagree, and if you take a look at the most controversial food opinions in a Twitter thread, no certain statements which are considered almost universal truths. For instance, almost everyone is believed to have had an affinity for coffee. Cheese tends to make every dish more indulgent and delicious. But there are a certain section of people who seem to disagree with these opinions. Now, you know, there are these trolls out there who just simply disagree with everything because that's what gets them off. That's what, you know, floats their boat. They just, if you say it's white, they'll say it's black. If you say it's light, they say it's dark. If you say it's red, they say it's blue. It doesn't matter what you say. They will find a way to argue with you. Anyway, tell me your most, here's the thread. Tell me your most genuinely controversial food opinion. I'll start. This is from Damon Young. Mayonnaise typically makes everything worse. I don't disagree. I, I like mayonnaise. I'll use it on some sandwiches. I like it on roast beef. Like if I go to Subway, I mean, if you just ask for mayonnaise, they will smother. They will drown the thing. They'll use half a bottle of mayonnaise. So I always say mayonnaise 
just a little bit, a little bit, just one little thread of mayonnaise, especially if it's like roast beast. I love roast beast. Anyway, um, he said that and others started sharing their opinions. People confessed their hatred for vegetables like pumpkin, eggplant, beetroots, even raw tomatoes on sandwiches. I'm not a fan, but not because of the flavor. It's because of the inconvenience of a, of a slice of tomato on a sandwich. It's always, it never bites through. It always falls apart and falls out the side. Uh, a couple others took a dig at avocados and mangoes. Whoa, watch it, what you say about mangoes. Uh, here's a few uh, from the thread. No food should contain lemon or lemon flavoring. That includes seafood, cookies, pies, dittos for orange, lime, or any other citrus. They're fine in a beverage, but not in my food. On a related note, and no fruit-chocolate dessert combos. That I wholeheartedly agree with. Everybody puts chocolate on fruit. I hate chocolate on fruit. Personal opinion, but... It's just, those flavors don't go. Chocolate-covered orange is a big one. Yuck! The orange acid citrus and then the sweet chocolate. You know, I get diametrically opposed flavors and how they fight in your mouth, and that can be an interesting... No, not orange chocolate. Ugh. Uh, raw tomatoes should never be on sandwiches. Uh, let's see. Oh, ketchup is less shameful sugar paste for people with a palate of toddlers. <laughs> uh, I'm a fan of, of ketchup. I really am. And yes, I put ketchup and mustard on my hot dogs. I know that's a cardinal sin to some Americans. Uh, fettuccine Alfredo is basically adult macaroni and cheese. <laughs> that's exactly right. You're right. Fettuccine Alfredo is just adult macaroni and cheese. And nostalgia does not mean better or even good. I can't disagree with that one. Eggplant should be illegal. That's it. That's the tweet. <laughs> this guy just does not like eggplant. Uh, tiramisu. I love tiramisu. He says, it's a waste of time and space. <laughs> From New South Wales. Tacos are overrated. Ooh, you are on dangerous territory, Ricky Smith. <laughs> At Riconia, if you want to reply. Tacos are overrated. Go away. Uh, let's see what else. <laughs> Meat. And fruit do not go together under any circumstances. Oh, and mango is gross. I find sometimes, I love mango, but sometimes mango will have kind of a petroleum flavor to me. I don't know if it's just some mangoes, but I will every now and then get a mango that has this kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a, not gasoline, but like a, petroleum sort of flavor. I, I don't know where that comes from, but I've noticed that. Um, 
after after she said mango is gross, Damon said, India would like a quiet word with you. <laughs> I think Malaysia would too. Uh, let's see. Green bell peppers taste offensive and take over everything they're added to. That's actually kind of true. I like the flavor of bell peppers, but they they are very they punch through anything else you add with them. Red, purple, yellow, all fine. Just hold the green ones. Okay. So this list goes on and on of all kinds of strange and unusual things that people don't like, but but they're very controversial. I mean, who would say tacos are overrated? I mean, come on. You're talking to a guy who just had his second Malaysia Taco Bell experience last night. As a matter of fact, let me see. Let me just scroll up here. Ah, yeah, here we go. Let me share this with you. This was from my post last night. There you go. That is yours truly, waiting outside of, yes, indeed, Taco Bell. And this is what we had for dinner. Well, it's a part of what we had for dinner, but there is my taco. I ordered the regular crunchy ones with beef, and they don't. the Supreme comes with cream cheese already. I mean cream cheese, uh, sour cream. So I ordered an extra sour cream so I could have sour cream on my taco. Because those are the important controversial issues of the day. Canada in tyranny, uh, you know, Ukraine, stolen elections, all that stuff. But the important things like tacos, those are what we talk about on this show. <laughs> I don't know. Seriously, why do you watch? Why do you listen? <laughs> Thank you for doing that, though. By the way, I'm hoping our stream is okay tonight. I had the worst problem with lag, and I don't know why. But uh, it looks like, I'm just doing a check here, it seems everything's all right. Okay. Uh, we all like to make fun of the cops. We all like to, uh, you know what? This lag is really driving me crazy in my headphones. Miko, you want a cookie? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm still trying to get her on the show. Miko, cookie time. We'll see. Okay, a lot of people make fun of the cops. They like to complain, and there are plenty of bad cops. Welcome to Malaysia. It's a nightmare. But as I've always said, there are plenty of good ones. For every bad cop, there's a handful, if not a good bunch, of some really great cops. And uh, we go, hey! Okay, before we do the cop thing, hold on. Look what I got. Miko, there's a cookie for you. You want a cookie? Come here. Come. Oh, now she's going to run away. Miko, babe, you want a cookie or not? Come on. <laughs> she knows what I'm up to. Come here, baby. Nah, she's not going to do it. I thought she was going to make it. You want a cookie or not? I got one. You want that? Hey, come. You want it? Come here. No, huh? All right. Never mind, dog. <laughs> I tried. She really wanted the cookie, but she knew what I was up to. She knew I was going to grab her if she came in here. <laughs> Smart dog. Okay, let's get into it. This is a great story, and uh, it's from the World of Buzz. Thank you, World of Buzz. Links in the show notes if you want to read the whole article. But Malaysian gives birth in a car. Ow on her way to the hospital 
and Abang police, which is Big Brother police, escorts them all the way. Check this out. There is the what looks like a little red Mivy. Police escort in front. There you see it circled. And uh, there we go. I'll get my mouse back. There is the, uh, the Malaysian police department. And uh, escorting this car to the hospital. The story is babies are blessings bestowed by nature. And a woman is no less than a miracle to be able to give birth to new lives with strength. Whether it's near a temple or on the way to the hospital, miracles don't wait for no one. Recently, a post on Facebook blew up when a story was shared of how a mother gave birth in the car on the way to the hospital and how her husband, a motorist and a patrol car, came to mom's rescue. A husband had rushed to the hospital when his wife went into labor, and on the way, he had turned into a turn to a passerby on a motorbike to help him clear the path as his wife was already starting to deliver. Uh, initially, the motorist was the one clearing the way for them. Fortunately, while waiting at the traffic light, the hero on the bike sought help from a nearby patrol car, who was also nearby. Well... Waiting for the light to turn green, the netizen on the bike approached, asking for help to clear the path for the Maivi driver as his wife was in labor. Corporal Mohammed Subri Ahmad, the cop in the patrol car, said, We turned the sirens on, cleared the path for the Maivi driver without any obstacles. That's when the motorist filmed the cop speeding through traffic with the siren switched on and a Maivi driving fast behind it on the way to Hospital Pusrawi in Kota Damansara. Our job is to help those in need, the corporal states. He further adds how the woman had, in fact, actually already delivered the baby on the way to the hospital. Malaysians all full of praise for the police. Thank God I'm so touched. PDRM is the best. That's Police de Raja Malaysia, the Royal Malaysian Police. Good deeds like these aren't usually witnessed by anyone. May the officers of PDRM be blessed with ease with their work. This is what the people want. Not escorting VVIPs and making VVIPs more important than an ambulance and the people's safety, a story we covered on this show. Good job, to the police officers involved, praises a netizen. Officers like these should be praised. Thank God, hopefully, the officer gets promoted. And here actually is the uh, the video. I, I don't think the sound is playing, but um, that's... Uh, there you go. There's the patrol car in front and the Mivy behind, and inside there is a brand new life coming into the earth. <laughs> Man absolutely incredible look at that away they go and this is the motorist shooting this video who actually was initially helping clear traffic and who asked the cop if if they could please escort and away they went look at that wow fantastic unbelievable congratulations to the new mom and dad and uh Congratulations to Abang Police, a great, great job. We like to uh, share good news stories when we can, and that certainly is a piece of uh, piece of good news. Wow. 
All right. Uh, one or two more stories before we get to our book tonight. We'll be doing another chapter in Tom Sawyer. We're on chapter 20 tonight. Um, I saw this and it fascinated me because, A, it's an interesting story by itself, but because I actually flew in one of these planes. Check that out. Now, this is an artist conception it's a it's a part artist part real picture but this is a what's called a flying fortress the b-17 flying fortress and they were extensively used in world war ii they are an amazing aircraft they are huge and it was exactly what its name says. It was a flying fortress. You can see there was a gun turret above, uh, a bombardier's uh, glass or plexiglass uh, nose cone. There's a giant bubble underneath you can't see in this picture, but there would be another bomb, uh, another gunner under there in this ball. Uh, it had guns on the sides, guns in the tail and loaded with bombs. It was an absolute flying fortress. I think it was the early 80s when a group that had restored one of these flying fortresses, these B-17s, I've told this story before, but in case you missed it, and they came uh, barnstorming. They would fly into a small airport, and they would sell tickets, and you could go for a ride on these planes. Um, what we did, the radio station I was working at at the time did a promotion where we gave away some seats and we actually found a few guys who had served in World War II and had flown on the B-17 Flying Fortress. Not this one, but one. We gave them a chance to relive their glory days in World War II and we brought them up in the flight. I went live from this plane and I was, let me get my mouse back. There we go. I was right here. Now the pilot sits obviously up here in the cockpit. I, and was right here, the bombardier who had an, a sight that would look straight down and he would lay down on his belly so he could look through this bomb sight to be able to call bombs away when it was time, when they were over the target. Well, that's where they stuck me, even ahead of the pilot. And I'm live on the air. And this pilot, young guy, he was a hot dog. Uh, we were over um, a big lake, I forget the name, in, uh, in northwest Connecticut. And this pilot flew low over the lake. I mean, I was looking out this glass nose and I could see the water rushing by underneath. And as I looked up, you see here, this all glass. As I look up, suddenly I see the tree line at the edge of the lake coming up really fast. <laughs> and, and at the very last minute, this pilot goes like that and just grazes. I mean, it doesn't hit anything. Thank God but just cuts it at the last second and pulls up and away over the mountain. It was amazing. One of the unbelievable thrills of my life. It was such an honor 
and such a thrill ride. And of course, the guys who'd actually served on this plane, they, they loved it even more. Anyway, there's a link to this story in our show notes. Check it out because this is a story of one B-17 that has been called the Phantom Fortress. Uh, no landing schedule, and it um, Royal Air Force anti-aircraft unit stations outside Kortenberg, Belgium, observed a B-17 flying fortress flying towards them. The massive U.S. Army Forces bomber approached at high speed with its landing gear down. No landing scheduled. The base personnel thought it was an emergency landing situation and reacted accordingly. The Flying Fortress proceeded to execute the emergency landing by plowing into a nearby field. Having just barely avoided crashing the unit's guns, the aircraft's landing was so fast and uncontrolled the propellers snapped off both wings and into the earth during the descent. The engines continued rumbling. The base personnel awaited what would obviously going to be a rattled crew inside the plane. There's another picture of uh, the Flying Fortress. Over 15 minutes, soldiers on the ground waited for the bombers' uh, crew to appear. Nobody left the plane. And after about 20 minutes of nothing, Major John V. Crisp cautiously approached the B-17. He didn't know much about the aircraft, took him a minute to find the entry hatch, and eventually when he did, the Major opened it and entered the bomber alone. And his own words best describe what he found. We now made a thorough search, and our most remarkable find in the fuselage was about a dozen parachutes neatly wrapped and ready for clipping on. This made the whereabouts of the crew even more mysterious. The Sperry bomb site remained in the Perspex nose, quite undamaged, with its cover neatly folded beside it. Back on the navigator's deck was the code book giving the colors and letters of the day for identification purposes. Various fur-lined flying jackets lay in the fuselage together with a few bars of chocolate, partly consumed in some cases. Amazingly, the crew was nowhere in sight. Not even dead bodies remained in the bomber. The only significant clue seemed to be the last note in the code book, where they wrote, Bad Flack. Despite the message, the only damage the bomber had was uh, some from its landing. And more to the point, the parachutes remained, meaning if anyone did bail out, they would have bailed out to certain death. The B-17 became known as the Phantom Fortress, took some time to form an idea of what might have occurred. Uh, the bomber itself was confirmed to be from the 91st Bombardment Group. The Phantom's last mission involved bombing oil refineries in Merzburg, Germany. During the mission, something went awry. The crew, amazingly, were found alive and accounted for in Belgium. According to them, the bomb rack had developed a problem. When they veered away from the group to resolve the issue, they took fire, which further damaged the rack, and took out one of the engines. The crew then decided to head for England, but when it became clear the bomber wasn't going to make it, they changed course to Brussels. Along the way, they jettisoned excess weight to keep the B-17 aloft, the Phantom continued to flounder, so the crew set the craft to autopilot and bailed out. 
Now, the crew's story didn't match the evidence. The bomber seemed to suffer none of the damage they described. Attempts to bridge the two were reasonably plausible, but still odd. The engines may have kicked back into working order on their own after the crew bailed. The initial investigators, uh, lacking knowledge of aircraft and only knowing about flak damage from the existing end, could have mistaken battle damage for crash damage. Though plausible, neither theories account for the crew's parachutes remaining on board. They also can't explain how the bomber managed the most difficult aspect of flying, landing, in something resembling a single piece. The Phantom's unmanned crash landing was a first, and left many wondering just how it happened. Very weird. And having flown in one of these aircrafts, they are massive. They are absolutely massive. Incredible. All right, what else we got going on? Uh, oh, cool article. I don't like posting stuff from the Malay Mail because they are a panic porn site. All they do is ridiculous, stupid headlines that try and get, you know, clickbait crap, basically. And they'll do whatever they can to make stuff sound ten times more horrible than it is. But every now and then, the idiots at the Malay Mail actually manage to do some journalism. Like this one. A court this week quashed the Home Ministry's ban on the Gay is Okay book. A book called, called uh, Gay is Okay, A Christian Perspective, can now be sold in Malaysia. Yes, believe it or not, if you're not in Malaysia, that's the kind of buffalo sandwich stuff we live with here. Uh, the High Court quashed a ban on the book that was implemented by the Home Ministry in 2020. Uh, lawyer Michael Che Ern Tien, who represented the book's writer, Nyo Boon Lin, confirmed Judge Datuk Norin Barahudin, uh, Badarudin, granted Nyo and publishing company Gerak Budaya's founder a judicial review today. And according to the grounds of the judgment shared by Che, the court found there was no evidence or legal factual basis for the minister's justification, which forms the basis of the ban. The judge also said it was unlikely the book was prejudicial to public order, <sighs> as the Home Ministry had failed to show evidence of such prejudice in the last seven years and more that the book had been in circulation. Judge noted neither Nyo nor Chong were given the right to be heard or to counter the allegations against the book, which the court considered an irrational decision, as the book had been in circulation for quite some time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I know. How childish. <clears throat> but, you know, when you're dealing with children. All right, last one. Very quick one, very quick one. All these links are on our show notes. Just check them out. This is the coolest story. Are you a Toy Story fan? Do you like Pixar, Toy Story? This apparently is true. When I read it, I thought, mm, probably not. Apparently it is. Someone at Pixar deleted all of Toy Story 2 and the backup. The film people deleted it and the backup. Hadn't worked for a month. The only reason we got to see this movie, Toy Story 2, 
was because someone on maternity leave had a copy of it on her home computer. Her name, Galen Sussman, and she is now the producer for the new Lightyear movie. Josh Williams made the comment here on the side. You can read it. It's totally true. Read this book. It goes through the history of Pixar, and it's written by the man that co-founded the company. Fascinating book. And he walks through exactly what happened in Toy Story 2, and it is a miracle that that movie ever even got made. But can you imagine? Someone at Pixar deleted toys, the whole film and its backup. And just because one lady who was on maternity leave had a copy on her machine at home, that was the only surviving copy and the only reason we all got to see Toy Story 2. Weird. I told you. I told you. The link is in our show notes tonight if you want to check it out. It's in our description. So, yeah, very strange. All right, it's time for a little Mark Twain. We read books on this show. I know. We bring you all kinds of collections of unbelievable curated crap. And then we read books, classic books, like The Wizard of Oz, The Little Prince, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, The Velveteen Rabbit. We've, we've done so many. And right now we're doing Tom Sawyer. We are at chapter 20. This book is long. I think we're about halfway through. So we've been doing a chapter a night. In the case of some cases where the chapters are a bit long, we uh, split it up into, into two. But uh, we're going to keep going. And tonight we are on chapter 20 uh, from Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Now, before we get started, I always say this. This book was written in 1876 by Mark Twain. Some of the words used in this book were appropriate in 1876. Today, not so much, including the use of the N-word. However, we are reading the words on the page exactly as they were typed out by Mr. Mark Twain. If that sort of thing offends you, then you might want to find something else to do for the next 15 minutes or so. All right. It's chapter 20 in the adventure of Tom Sawyer. There was something about Aunt Polly's manner when she kissed Tom that swept away his low spirits and made him lighthearted and happy again. He started school and had the luck of coming upon Becky Thatcher at the head of Meadow Lane. His mood always determined his manner. Without a moment's hesitation, he ran to her and said, I acted mighty mean today, Becky. I'm so sorry. I won't ever, ever do that again, long as I ever live. Please make up, won't you? The girl stopped, looked him scornfully in the face. I'll thank you to keep to yourself, Mr. Thomas Sawyer. I'll never speak to you again. She tossed her head and passed on. Tom was so stunned that he had not even presence of mind to say, Who cares, Miss Smarty? until the right time to say it had gone by. So he said nothing. 
but he was in a fine rage nevertheless. He moped into the schoolyard wishing she were a boy and imagining how he would trounce her if she were. He presently encountered her and delivered a stinging remark as he passed. She hurled one in return, and the angry breach was complete. It seemed to Becky, in her hot resentment, that she could hardly wait for school to take in. She was so impatient to see Tom flogged for the injured spelling book. If she'd had any lingering notion of exposing Alfred Temple, Tom's offensive fling had driven it entirely away. Poor girl, she did not know how fast she was nearing trouble herself. The master, Mr. Dodbins, had reached middle-aged with an unsatisfied ambition. The darling of his desires was to be a doctor, but poverty had decreed he would be nothing higher than a village schoolmaster. Every day he took a mysterious book out of his desk and absorbed himself in it at times when no classes were reciting. He kept that book under lock and key. There was not an urchin in school, but was perishing to have a glimpse of it. But the chance never came. Every boy and girl had a theory about the nature of that book, but no two theories were alike. There was no way of getting at the facts of the case. Well, now, as Becky was passing by the desk, which stood near the door, she noticed that the key was in the lock. It was a precious moment. She glanced around, found herself alone, and the next instant she had the book in her hands. The title page, Professor Somebody's Anatomy, carried no information to her mind, so she began to turn the leaves. She came at once upon a handsomely engraved and colored frontispiece, a human figure, stark naked. At that moment a shadow fell on the page, and Tom Sawyer stepped in at the door and caught a glimpse of the picture. Becky snatched at the book to close it, and had the hard luck to tear the pictured page halfway down the middle. She thrust the volume into the desk, turned the key, and burst out crying with shame and vexation. Tom Sawyer, you are just as mean as you could be to sneak up on a person and look at what they're doing at. How could I know you was looking at anything? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Tom Sawyer. You know, you're going to tell on me, and oh, what shall I do? What shall I do? I'll be whipped. I was never whipped in school. Then she stamped her little foot and said, Be so mean if you want to. I know something that's going to happen. You just wait and you'll see. Hateful, hateful, hateful. She flung out of the house with a new explosion of crying. Tom stood still, rather flustered at the onslaught. Presently he said to himself, What a curious kind of fool girl is. Never been licked in school. Shucks, what's a licking? That's just like a girl. They're so thin-skinned and chicken-hearted. Well, of course, I ain't going to tell old Dobbins on this little fool, because there's other ways of getting even on her that ain't so mean. But what of it? Old Dobbins, who asks who tore his book, nobody will answer, then he'll do just the way he always does. Ask first one, then t'other, and when it comes to the right girl, he'll know it without telling. Girls' faces always tell on them. 
they ain't got any backbone. She'll get licked. Well, it's kind of a tight place for Betsy Thatcher, because there ain't any way out of it. Tom conned the thing a moment longer and then added, All right, though. She'd like to see me in just such a fix. Let her sweat it out. Tom joined the mob of skylarking scholars outside. In a few moments, the master arrived and school took in. Tom didn't feel a strong interest in his studies. Every time he stole a glance at the girl's side of the room, Becky's face troubled him. Considering all things, he did not want to pity her. Yet, it was all he could do to help it. He could get up no exultation that was really worthy the name. Presently, the spelling book discovery was made, and Tom's mind was entirely full of his own matters for a while after that. Becky rose up from her lethargy of distress and showed good interest in the proceedings. She didn't expect Tom could get out of his troubles by denying that he spilt the ink on the book himself, and she was right. The denial only seemed to make the thing worse for Tom. Becky supposed she'd be glad of that. She tried to believe she was glad of that, but she found she was not certain. When the worst came to the worst, she had an impulse to get up and tell on Alfred Temple. She made an effort, forced herself to keep still, because she said to herself, He'll tell about me tearing the picture, sure. I shouldn't say a word, not to save his life. Tom took the whipping, went back to his seat, not at all broken-hearted, for he thought it was possible that he had unknowingly upset the ink on the spelling book himself. In some skylarking bout, he had denied it for form's sake and because it was custom and had stuck to the denial from principle. A whole hour drifted by. The master sat nodding in his throne. The air was drowsy with the hum of study. By and by, Mr. Dobbins straightened himself up, yawned, and then unlocked his desk and reached for his book. But he seemed undecided whether to take it out or leave it. Most of the pupils glanced up languidly, but there were two among them that watched his movements with intent eyes. Mr. Dobbins fingered his book absently for a while, then took it out, settled himself into his chair to read. Tom shot a glance at Becky. He had seen a hunted and helpless rabbit look like she did, with a gun leveled at its head. Instantly, he forgot his quarrel with her. Quick, something must be done, and done in a flash, too. But the very imminence of the emergency paralyzed his invention. Good! He had an inspiration. He would run and snatch the book, spring through the door and fly. But his resolution shook for one little instant, and the chance was lost. The master opened the volume. If Tom only had wasted opportunity back again, too late. There was no help for Becky now, he said. The next moment the master faced the school, every eye sank under his gaze. There was that in it which smote even the innocent with fear. There was silence while one might count ten. The master was gathering his wrath, and then he spoke. Who told this book? There was not a sound.
one could have heard a pin drop. The stillness continued. The master searched face after face for signs of guilt. Benjamin Rogers, did you tear this book? A denial. Another pause. Joseph Harper, did you? Another denial. Tom's uneasiness grew more and more intense under the slow torture of these proceedings. The master scanned the rank of boys, considered a while, then turned to the girls. Amy Lawrence, a shake of the head. Gracie Miller, the same sign. Susan Harper, did you do this? Another negative. The next girl was Betsy Thatcher. Tom was trembling from head to foot with excitement and a sense of hopelessness of the situation. Rebecca Thatcher! Tom glanced at her face. It was white with terror. Did you tear... No, look at me in the face! Her hands rose in appeal. Did you tear this book? A thought shot like lightning through Tom's brain. He sprang to his feet and shouted, I done it! The school stared in perplexity at this incredible folly. Tom stood a moment to gather his dismembered faculties, and when he stepped forward to go to his punishment, the surprise, the gratitude, the adoration that shone upon him out of poor Becky's eyes seemed pay enough for a hundred floggings. Inspired by the splendor of his own act, he took without an outcry the most merciless flaying that even Mr. Dobbins had ever administered, and also received with indifference the added cruelty of a command to remain two hours after school should be dismissed, for he knew who would wait for him outside till his captivity was done, and not count the tedious time as lost either. Tom went to bed that night planning vengeance against Alfred Temple, for with shame and repentance Becky had told him all, not forgetting her own tra tragedy, treachery. But even the longing for vengeance had to give way soon to pleasanter musings, and he fell asleep at last with Becky's latest words lingering dreamily in his ear. Tom, how could you be so noble? And that's chapter 20 of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by the amazing Mark Twain. Okay, guys. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for popping by. Be sure and like and subscribe. Really important. And it's free, but it's easy to do. Just click on the button wherever it is. Subscribe, follow, like, share, whatever. Thank you. I will see you again on Saturday night. Until then, I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. Good night. <laughs>